0: You're listening to Twitch Asylum Video
1: Game Radio.
2: Twitch Asylum, show number
1: four. All right, so uh, Twitch Asylum, episode number four, we're all here. But the quality on this uh, podcast may not be as good as our previous ones. I know that's, that's not saying much, <laughs> but uh, but Tom's remote, and we're doing this over Skype, so I'm not sure that's going to sound all that great, but we decided no we'll go ahead answers, and give no a give a podcast. I'm sorry. We'll go ahead and do a podcast, uh, <laughs> even though the sound quality might not be that great, because we actually have some pretty good content for the show.
0: Yeah, this is uh, the Quattro, and Chris is just back from Mexico. How was yeah. that?
1: Mexico was a blast, Tom. Had a good time. Got a few stories. Did you find we'll... out
0: where in Mexico you were?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I actually did uh, Did find out eventually. We were in Ocamal, which is about 45 minutes away from uh, Cancun.
2: All right. And it's it's no, much,
1: much quieter. We did a lot of cool things. Uh, is it on to... the Yucatan? I, I don't know. It's near the Caribbean Sea. Say, That's okay. the only thing I know. All right. But, uh, but yeah, it's near know.
0: some ocean or something. Yeah, there's a, there's a big ocean the there,
1: and, and it was a lot of fun. I have a couple stories I want to share with you, Tom, and and, Will, All right. and, and the listeners. Uh, probably the best story I have is uh, we got there, and we went to the uh, Hertz rental place, and Amy, my wife, had booked online, and it was like $40 a day, which was a really good deal. It seemed like a good deal at the time. So I uh, went there, and they showed us our, our car. You know, it's $40 a day. And then they brought out the insurance form. Uh, have you seen the insurance form, Tom? No. Yeah. All right. Well, the insurance uh, for coverage, full coverage, was a uh, hundred dollars a day. So nice. $40. the car was
0: forty dollars, and the insurance was a hundred dollars. Nice. Hundred
1: dollars a day. Yeah. But uh, fortunately, my wife had also booked through this place called Easyway, Way, which uh, sounds sounds easy. So uh, it sounds easy, right? But they're not near the airport, so we had to find an attendant from Easyway, Way, and they drove us to this uh, little shack uh, uh, that uh, that was the Easy Way headquarters. And
0: uh, (laughs) it it, it didn't look all that great, but actually... Was the car, like, still up on blocks?
1: (laughs) No, no, no. They're actually really nice cars. Okay. That's not really the funny part. The funny part is we go in, we fill out all the paperwork, right, and we're waiting there and put in the computer, and they're taking their time to do whatever, and uh, the guy who's uh, entering it all in, he's like, you want a Cerveza? And I'm like uh, I'm like, uh, a cerveza, cerveza. He's offering
0: you a beer before yeah, uh, you get yeah.
1: in the car to yeah, drive? Yeah, like right, right before <laughs> I'm taking his rental car away, he's going to offer me a beer. So that, that was kind of a, a red flag to me. So I said, I like you know, the <laughs> <laughs> I said, you know, is that common? Do you, do you normally drive around with uh, cervezas in your car? And he goes, well, it's fine if you have one, just don't have two. And when you drive by cops, don't tell them, hey, you know, I've got a cerveza. don't raise it to him and say hi, just, and you'll be fine. That's what he said. That's what he told me. All right. So uh, it actually even gets better. So, uh, so we're driving, you know, it's two-lane, everything's fine, got the car, feeling good. Didn't take the Cerveza, uh, just driving normally. When you, after you get past Cancun like a ways down, it goes to this weird type of highway that is split. Uh, yeah. You know, it's like a two-way, you have a, uh, opposite directions, you know, and on each side there's a, a small shoulder.
0: So there's so a divider in the middle. Is that what no you're divider.
1: No divider. So the traffic's coming both ways, and I'm thinking, well, okay, that's fine. But on each side, there's a small shoulder, like maybe half a lane shoulder. So I'm like, well, that's weird. You know, I guess that's where cars pull off or whatever. So I'm driving along, and all of a sudden, you know, I see a car in the back, and uh, and it and there's a car behind me, and but it's actually the car behind him pulls out, passes us both, and, and pulls in front of us. And at the, the car behind me pulled into the little shoulder lane. So I, I figured out that this is what you have to do. is When people are going to pass you, you pull into the little shoulder lane to let them pass. Well,
0: that's kind of oh, also So weird. instead of the person passing, pulling, like the people who are getting past have to pull over?
1: Yeah, the people who are getting past kind of have to pull into the shoulder area because, again, this guy is going into opposing traffic. Stay with me, Tom. Yeah.
0: And so, yeah, what's yeah. even
1: better is that you know I'm thinking, okay, well that makes sense. You kind of go on the shoulder, and the person's going to pass you.
0: So this is like burnout revenge,
1: basically. Right. <laughs> but it gets better, Tom, because even when cars are coming at you, they do this, and they expect the people in the opposing lanes to also pull into the shoulder while they're
0: passing. All so right. You so you following me? It, yeah. Yeah. So, this is sounding like burnout.
1: Right. So so okay, well, well I'm <laughs> I'm just totally like I, I can't believe this because there's cars just whipping by me. The cars in the opposing lane are about to hit them, and they pull into the shoulder to let them pass. You know, it's all happen, happening very fast, and I'm getting used to it, and I'm, like, pulling to the shoulder. I'm like, okay, great. Well, if we finally make it to our exit, and I signal I put my left turn signal on to turn into our into our place at Ackermill, and, and everybody starts honking at me. I'm like, what the hell? I, I signaled left. I, I'm going into my <laughs> particular uh, place, and everybody's honking at me. So the next day, I figured out why that was happening. The only time they use, like, the left and the right... Uh, or actually just the left turn signal, is to pass people. You don't use the left turn signal if you want to turn off. What you do, and it's an interesting technique, is you turn on your uh, (laughs) hazard flashers and pull Uh into the shoulder, and you wait for everybody to be clear on both sides, and then you turn.
0: Nice. So wait a minute. You tur- you pull onto the shoulder in order to turn left.
1: Right. So you pull. So in- you
0: pull further right to turn
1: left. You pull right into the shoulder. Turn on your emergency hazards. Wait for it to be clear, and then you turn left. Yeah, that's how you do it. That's
0: wow, that's awesome. so logical. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it took me a while to get used to that. All right. So the other thing we did is we went and uh, visited a couple cenotes. Do you know what cenotes are?
2: Is that a same as a Benjamin?
1: No, it's, a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a, a cave, right? It's an underground cave with stalactites that were formed like six million years ago, and they have water running through them, and they're really, really cool. But this one park we went to, they had uh, spider monkeys. And as you entered the park, there was a sign that said, uh, monkeys at play, keep your car locked. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty funny, you know, because they know they're spider monkeys, and they're just trying to mess around with us. Well, I locked <laughs> my gonna car. They're going to carjack yeah. you. <laughs> I locked my car, but what was kind of irritating is we got there, and this one car was like parked in the middle and didn't like – take a parking spot. I was like, what a jerk, you know, didn't park. So we go in there, and these spider monkeys are awesome, man. They're, like, climbing all over. They use their tails to do climbing and stuff. When we come out, this car, its door is open, (laughs) and it has a bunch of branches shoved in its tailpipe. It was just hilarious, dude. The monkeys apparently got out, didn't like the way the guy was parked, went in his car, which was unlocked, and shoved a bunch of crap in his tailpipe.
0: That's awesome.
1: Yeah, so... That's pretty good times. Beautiful. So, Tom, where are you located today?
0: I'm on location in Seattle today, and I'm and here tomorrow, to maybe. and tomorrow and Sunday, and I'm here to attend SakuraCon, which is a big anime convention. Soccer event or it, no, it's an anime convention, and I'm actually here on behalf of the Journal of the Lincoln Heights Literary Society, which is a website that I write for. Um, in addition to doing this podcast, I also review anime and manga for. Uh, That site. So So you're almost uh, a
2: real journalist. I'm
0: almost a real journalist, Uh. (laughs) but I'm here to cover the convention for uh, Lincoln Heights. Cool. Now, isn't there going to be any video game
1: related stuff there? Because sometimes anime and video games kind of go hand in hand. Yeah,
0: there's a lot of crossover between anime uh, fans and video game fans. They're going to have a bunch of rooms full of both classic and contemporary video games, they're going to have video game contests. Penny Arcade Online Comic, which is an online comic about video games, great are going to be here. It, yeah, there's plenty of crossover. The last convention I went to was Comicon in Portland, and they had a great uh, Dance Dance Revolution scene going, and I got to see some of the people who are really great at that gameplay. It's, it, it's quite amazing to watch them, because not only do they play the game perfect, but they add in a lot of style and you know make it look really cool while they're playing it, too.
1: Cool. Well, that sounds like fun. So next show, you're going to give us a report back on what what you saw and what was cool? Yeah, I definitely will. All right. So what we're going to do this show is look a little bit at uh, Tech TV and G4 and do a rant on them, kind of the demise of Tech TV and G4. Uh, obviously, we're going to do what we're currently playing in the news. And in the retro section, we're going to take a look at the Atari Flashback 2 game console. And we'll have an interview at the end of this particular podcast with uh, Kurt Vendel. He's a... Uh, He's kind of the main man when it comes to that particular console, and and really a lot of uh, Atari-related memorabilia. He runs the the AtariMuseum.com. He's probably the most famous Atari historian and, and collector, so that should be a really good interview.
0: Great, our second interview.
1: All right, on to show number four. All right, welcome to The Rant. What's it about, Chris? Uh, this time we're ranting on G4 and Tech TV, Tom.
0: The cable channel's about video gaming, or at least at one point they were about and video technology
1: gaming. technology, and the demise, and they've demised into nothingness.
0: So how did this all begin? Because I came kind of late to Tech TV.
1: Well, just a real quick history. Tech TV started out as ZDTV, and they were subsequently acquired by Vulcan Enterprises, or is it just Vulcan? I don't even know. And uh, people in Portland, Oregon are familiar with Vulcan. That's uh, owned by Paul Allen, who also owns the Trailblazers. And and what's interesting is the demise of uh, Tech TV, uh, kind of you know, is similar to the demise of the Blazers, which uh, the Trailblazers, Jailblazers, maybe they're known nationwide. Uh, <laughs> ever since uh, Paul Allen and uh, Vulcan took over, kind of went to the uh, to the uh, crapper, I guess is a way to put it.
0: That's the uh, Sportscaster terminology?
1: Yeah, that's sportscaster <laughs> Exactly Tom. So Vulcan acquired Z D T V and they eventually renamed it to Tech TV. And there were tons of layoffs and eventually uh, and program format changes and eventually it became the tech TV that we know and, and love or we used to know and love before it it, it went away. But in uh, two thousand one and two thousand two Comcast and I was watching it on Comcast, I know Tom, you were watching it on Comcast, a lot of the tech yes, T V shows they're really good. Uh, decided to drop it from their channel lineup, which was was nice of them for us. Uh,
0: yeah, I remember it, hearing that announcement. At the time, I was really into watching X-Play, and I thought, oh, they're dropping Tech TV. But then they picked it up as G4. And no, G4 no, they are, uh,
1: and that's not how it worked. They already had G4. G4 was a competitor of Tech TV, Tom. No,
0: I know, but G4 picked up X-Play.
1: Oh, right, but that's, that's later, Tom. So essentially what happened is uh, Comcast dropped Tech TV from its lineup. They had their own station, G4. And then in 2004, they merged Tech TV and G4, and that's when you got your X-Play back. So it wasn't until later that I think X-Play came back into the fold, as it were. So anyway, <laughs> a lot of people say the reason that Comcast dropped it was just to lower the price of Tech TV because they weren't on all these cable stations anymore. And then they could do this merger thing and acquire Tech TV and merge it with G4. But it's kind of weird uh, scenes how G4 is kind of degraded into nothingness. So many of the people at that time, when they did that merger of Tech TV and G4, were given the axe. Uh, probably most notably uh, Leo Laporte of uh, Twit. He had contract issues, so he he was uh, he was not part of that. He never went on to the uh, G4. He's he's actually on it now, which is kind of funny. But uh, at the time, he he didn't he wasn't on it when they did that initial merger. A lot of shows got removed, and then after that, they went through all these name changes. You know, Tech G4 TV Tech 4, some I don't even know what they were. And uh, they finally just settle back to uh, G4.
0: Well, I've never quite understood what G4 stands for. I mean, G must be games or something. What's the four?
1: It's video game television, Tom. G4.
0: G4 TV. Um, anyway, okay, so the
1: fourth generation. Fourth. I don't know. Are you making that up, Woody? I think you're making that up. I'm totally making it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds good, except for it's inversed. But so, I
0: think uh, your your complaint is that there's less and less. Tech and game related shows well, on it, right? the thing is,
1: I used to watch Tech TV, and I liked a lot of the shows, like the Screen Savers and Tech Live and X Play and Unscrewed. But uh, you know, eventually, like in uh, that Comcast dropped it, so it just kind of disappeared. And I was happy when I, I finally upgraded to digital cable, and uh, and I had G4, and I noticed that you know some of those shows were there. I I had the Screen Savers and I had X Play. But a lot of the shows seem to have changed over time and, and degraded into shows that really aren't very good anymore. And I think the biggest uh, case you can see for that is with, uh, with the screensavers. I mean, that show was good. It was even good when I got digital cable. Yeah, I know Woody and I used to talk about it at work. We thought it was a pretty good show. Mm-hmm. So the only thing that's really interesting now about the show is trying to determine who Sarah Lane is dating. This week, I mean, I, I don't understand.
2: Now I'll say I actually like the show that they now have, Attack of the Show, um, I, I, and I still like X Play still on there. So there's an hour and a half of programming I enjoy. But I will admit that uh, Attack of the Show certainly no longer has the focus on gaming that it or tech even that it I mean, once.
1: Attack of the Show, the fact that they named it Attack of the Show is stupid. Well, like, yeah. The name is... makes no sense. I, I mean, when they changed the name, I was like, what is Attack of the – I didn't even understand when they made that transition what the hell was going on.
2: Yeah, well, and, that's just terrible, And then as, man.
1: as soon as Kevin Rose left, I mean, that was a sign that that show was done because the only person there actually knew anything, he's gone. The rest of them are there involved in these stupid skits that they make up, which actually X-Play has been doing a lot of too, and I don't really get – Yeah, X-Play not, does do that, and I, it's it like bothers ridiculous, me because –
0: I just want to hear the reviews and the commentary. I don't want to see them act out some kind of crazy thing where you know Link from from Nintendo is uh, drunk or something. You know, it's crazy. (laughs) Yeah,
1: and the only like I watched Attack of the Show today, and it was really entertaining. I got entertained with comics, action figures, uh, DVDs, and a live band, which was very technical, and I learned a lot about gaming (laughs) all at the same time.
0: Well, what this reminds me of is MTV. How MTV used to show all music videos, and then now we've gotten to the point where MTV shows, you know, reality shows like uh, Road Rules and, and The Real World, and it's really not about music anymore. And to even get the music videos, you have to watch MTV2.
1: Do you watch MTV2, Tom?
0: I don't watch it exactly. What I do is I tape it, and I fast-forward to the videos I want to see. That's
1: really sad, Tom. You might as well just download them off the Internet. All right, I did a calculation this morning in less than 50% of the time are video game or even technology-based shows being shown on G4 TV, which makes no sense. Why call it G4 TV and not have these shows? Instead, what you get is things like The Man Show, Star Trek, Bonsai, Street Fury, Fast Lane, Training Camp, and Formula D. What are these shows and what are they doing on a video game channel? Well, Star Trek at sense. least overlaps with the nerd segment.
2: But yeah. Well, maybe we're treky, wrong. not Techie. Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes.
0: Maybe we're wrong, and G doesn't stand for game. It stands for general. Well,
2: clearly it doesn't anymore.
1: The only show left really worth anything on G4 is Icons. And from what I've heard, they're actually going to try to change that format as well. So I'm sure that'll go to a show that's really stupid and I don't like it anymore. And and the whole channel is just ridiculous. And they ought to just name it Spike TV 2 like it's starting to be and get rid of the whole thing because it's just irritating. And why do we even care? I guess I was thinking about this morning. You know, why ran on this? Do I even care? Do Does it matter to me? And I guess it does somewhat. Uh, I have some well, interest in it. because There's so
2: little stuff on TV that's good. It's sad to see a channel that had a lot of good content slowly fade into the mediocrity of everything else. But the thing is, like,
1: people will say, well, you've got vidcasts, you've got podcasts, can't you just listen to those? And, you know, we're a podcast, so I, I should say, yeah, you should listen to those. <laughs> but the thing is, there's that casual time when you don't want to deal with a computer or your iPod and start it and watch it all the way through. You just want to kind of click and say, hey, what's on right now? Maybe I'm interested in what's on right now, maybe I'm not, and I'll click on Tem to tv 2 I won't record it like Tom does, but maybe I'll click to it. But you can't do that anymore because all when I turn it on, I get the nice bonsai show and, and training camp with Eddie George and my Formula D <laughs> and Street Fury. There's nothing technologically or gaming-related on there that I'm interested in, and it's just kind of irritating. Well, what what do you do? <laughs> I guess in the meantime, if if you don't have your G four and your uh, Tech TV anymore, you listen to us. Yeah, listen to podcasts, and I would recommend a Twitch Sign Vidigamaria right at the top. Uh, but besides that, you listen to the people that used to be on Tech TV, like Leo Laporte and his his podcasts, like Twit. You listen to things like Dig with Kevin Rose and Alex Albrecht, System, and others that uh, that they've done. I guess that's basically it. I mean, just listen to those podcasts with the Tech TV people. I think they're really good, and they're moving in a good direction. I'm Unfortunately, it's not the surfing type environment that I like. Sometimes when I'm totally brain dead, and just want to sit on the couch and veg. But it is good to uh, to watch those guys, and, and it does bring back uh, memories of the tech TV that uh, that no longer exists. And we can thank Paul Allen for that somehow. I don't know. <laughs>
0: Time for the Gaming Moments. Take it away, Tom. Well, in our last podcast, I said that way back when, when I first saw Pac-Man, my impression was, hey, nobody's going to want to play a game about eating things. Why would they? I don't like it. And it's it's funny because the newest game on Xbox 360 Arcade is called Feeding Frenzy, and guess what it's about? It's about eating things. You're a fish, and you swim around, and you can eat smaller fish, and bigger fish can eat you. And it's kind of like Pac-Man, except there's no walls and there's no maze. You just swim around and eat things and, uh, Sounds like a blast. It's actually kind of fun because it's just this very simple, very fast-paced game. It's easy to pick up, easy to get into. Um, it's very short. I got all the way through the basic mode in just a few hours of play. And then after that, all you can really do is do the timed mode and try to get more points. So it's really not going to replace Geometry Wars for me, I think. Uh, but, it, but it's a cute game. It's fun. It has some nice graphics. And I like to see that kind of simple, fun gameplay. How much did it cost? Uh, I think that costs 800 uh, 360 points. that's
1: more than Geometry Wars.
0: Yeah, it is. So Geometry Wars is definitely a better deal there. Because I think I'm still going to be playing Geometry Wars a year from now.
1: Yeah, I would think so. Because you're still going to be trying to beat my score. I'm
0: still going to be trying to beat your score. The other one I've been playing is uh, Ghost Recon on Xbox 360. Yeah, I wish I had
1: played that, but uh, Woody uh, took my uh, Xbox 360 hostage. He did? Yeah, when I was in Mexico he took it away. And... uh, (laughs) I would have been able to play it today. I would have been able to go purchase it and play it, but uh, but no 360 to play it on.
0: Well, I'll tell you what. If you have a widescreen HDTV and Which surround I do. sound I do. and you play Ghost Recon, I hate you, by the way. it just <laughs> is I great. The graphics are beautiful. The detail is beautiful. This is a game that makes a very good first impression. After many hours of play... I think that some of that shimmer kind of wears off, and you realize that it's basically the same gameplay of Ghost Recon that you've seen before. But, no, it's still nice. (laughs) Um, One of the things I noticed playing this game is that there's this scene, this is one of my gaming moments, there's a scene where you're defending an American embassy that's under attack, and you're kind of, you know, crouched behind a wall, and people are firing at you, and... The the detail and the realism on the 360 makes this just feel uncomfortably real. Like I just had a bad feeling about this. Like it was just too close to something that would actually happen in the real world, you know? To be like hunkered down in an American embassy coming under fire, it it gave me a bad feeling in my stomach. It was just like, oh, I don't know what this. But it it was cool because it was able to create that experience. You know? So have
1: you uh, tried the
0: multiplayer at all yet? Did I have not. That's the bomb. I have not played multiplayer yet, just the single-player campaign.
1: Yeah, I need to go get that. That's the game I want to play on the 360 most. Although I know uh, you've been playing some other games on the 360 that you think are the are the best. So uh, talk about that one.
0: Okay, well, the one that I think is the best is Elder Scrolls of Oblivion. RPG. 3D RPG, but it's not a turn-based RPG. It's a It's a real-time RPG. I think this is the killer app for Xbox 360. I think... This is what you have to go out and buy an Xbox 360 to play. This does for the RPG what Grand Theft Auto did for, you know, sort of crime-themed shooting. It is amazing. And the interesting thing is I was listening to this podcast, uh, Video Game Outsiders, one of the other podcasts I listened to, and the guy on there was saying that he was very impressed with this game and that he was in the sewers and he was fighting these rats, and it was so amazing. And I just laughed when I heard that because I was like, Dude, that's just the stupid little intro, you know, tutorial level. That's nothing. You haven't even seen anything yet. You're not even out into the main world. So
1: wait a like, minute, Tom. Are you are you throwing down the gauntlet and saying that the VGO guys aren't real gamers? Is that what you're saying, Oh, Tom? no, no. I'm that's, not saying I, that's that at all. That's what I think Tom's no. saying. I heard it. Did you hear no, that, buddy? No, what I'm that's saying what is...
0: No, no, no. What I'm saying is so if he was impressed by the initial tutorial level, which is it, it's true, it is impressive, but if he was impressed by that... When he gets into the outside world and like goes into these massive cities with like people and stuff everywhere, I mean he's just gonna be—it's gonna blow his mind, just like it did to me, just like it did to me. Because when I got out of that sewer and I got to you know seeing this incredibly detailed world with you know rocks and trees and mountains and rivers and cities and buildings and butterflies and I mean it's just like—it sounds to me though
1: that that's mostly graphics, right? So you know what's so great about the game? It's
0: not just graphics though the thing is that the game itself the gameplay is just as detailed as the graphics so let's say you go down you know down a road and you get off the road into a field and you walk down and under a tree you see this really beautiful flower, and you go, oh, what's that? That's kind of cool. That's a neat detail. And then it turns out you can actually harvest that flower and then use that particular flower in some kind of alchemy recipe <laughs> later on in the game. So the gameplay is fanatically detailed, just like the graphics are. It's, it's absolutely cool. You, you've, you've helped me make my decision with that particular comment, Tom. I'm, I'm definitely
1: <laughs> going to go purchase Ghost Recon and play that. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm telling you, if you like fantasy games, if you like RPGs, um, Oblivion is just uh, a, a, an incredibly cool game. So it I'm assuming that me... you've
1: uh, taken your Dragon Quest uh, and thrown it away at this point. No,
0: no, 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 no. I'm still playing Dragon Quest Eight. It's still a fun game. i got to tell you, Dragon Quest Eight is very clever, and what it does is it really kind of tricks you. With the in-game map, because you look at this map, and after a while, you've been playing, you know, many hours, and you look at the map and you kind of say to yourself, well, I've been everywhere, or I've been almost everywhere. I must be close to the end of the game. It turns out there are things, you know, I'm not going to give it away, but there are things that you really haven't been to. And it's very clever the way it's done because it really makes you think that you must be getting close to the end when you're not. So it's really when I discovered that, I that just made me love the game all the more.
2: All right.
1: All right. Well, uh, I was on my trip, so I, I didn't have a, a lot of time to play. Actually, I had no time to play my 360 since my 360 was gone. It was at Woody's house, and uh-huh, yeah, well, yeah, right.
0: <laughs> but what and did so, you take uh, with you on the trip?
1: Spent a lot of time with my PSP. I played, uh, Luminous. Yeah, I don't know if, is it Lumines? Luminous? I, I don't even know I've how i Luminous. Alright, well, it's Luminous, and I played that on the plane quite a bit. It's still one of my favorite PSP games. That is time. a fun game. I also played Star Soldier a bit. Do you remember that one, Tom?
0: Name sounds familiar, but remind me what it is. It's
1: the shooter that you turn your PSP to the side and oh, that's right. <laughs>
0: it's like vertical mode. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: So I played that a bit on the plane. Actually, I got to the end because I kept continuing until I finished it. So that was kind of fun. It's the one I picked up at Fry's because they have all the import games at Fry's, and it, it was one of the import games. And it's actually pretty cool. It's not so, bad. are the
0: is the text on Japanese?
1: No, no, it's English, but uh, but it's it wasn't released in the U.S. It's a Japanese. If you turn helmet. it vertical, how do you hit the buttons? Well, there's a you can turn on auto fire.
0: Ah. So
1: you turn on auto fire and then you play it. It's kind of it's pretty cool. You played it, Tom. What'd you think of it? It's I an old it was pretty game.
0: Good. Yeah, it's a it's an old old school
1: game. So I played uh, Exit and Mega Man, like I talked about before I left. But uh, the funny thing is, here's another story from Mexico. This is a pretty cool one. Is uh, I was on, we were on our way to a place called Coba. Have you heard of that, Tom?
0: Not. Is that long. like the Copa Cabana?
1: No. <laughs> so you would mention that Copa Cabana was uh, like right down from where we stayed. So it's really? Fun. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we're on our way to Coba, and that's a place where they have these Mayan ruins, and uh-huh. it's, they're really cool. You know, they're I think they were like eighteen hundred, so they're not super old or anything, but they're definitely cool ruins to check out. But we're on our way to Kobe to check these out, and there's this very small village or town on the way, and it's extremely poor, and we stop there, and the kids come begging for pesos, and we give them pesos, and my wife gets a picture with them because she likes to take pictures. She likes to, to hog the digital <laughs> camera, which I really need to get another digital camera so I get to take some pictures too. But that's, uh, that's kind of off-subject. But uh, it's an extremely poor uh, poor town, and we're walking around, and I find there's three arcade games. At this little store, out front, in front of the store, like on the dirt. Like outside? Outside, They're yeah. They're sitting
0: outdoors, in arcade Outdoors,
1: right. And I didn't even think this place had electricity, but apparently <laughs> it does, and they've got three arcade games. So it, it was completely uh, kind of off the wall. So check them what out. What
0: games were they? Yeah, do you recognize them?
1: Yeah, well, you... the games are were weird. I've got a picture of it, and I'll put it on uh, in the forum so you guys can see it. They had, like these weird like names on them, but the names on the marquee didn't reflect what was actually in the system. So one of the games was Metal Slug Five, another game was uh, I think Street Fighter, one of the Street Fighters, and the, the craziest game was the game that that was being played was uh, Grand Theft Auto. So, Wait a minute,
0: how was know, Grand Theft Auto an arcade game? Yeah,
1: it was. It was really weird. It was like Grand Theft Auto. I think it was San Andreas, and it was uh, it, it was basically timed. You'd put quarters in and you'd play it for a certain amount of time. So this little town who I didn't think had electricity that they're begging for pesos has an arcade game that has Grand Theft Auto in it so I thought it was just <laughs> totally insane and crazy I have a picture oh, of it I'll put on the website you're not going to Yeah I got to see the
0: picture of this yeah. too and,
1: So uh, how long do you get to play it I don't know it was like a couple minutes play it for huh. a couple minutes it, it, it's it's very odd I don't know how to explain it All right so another one of my gaming moments uh, took place in Mexico and we found an arcade that was located adjacent to a movie theater And we walked in there and I took a couple pictures just because I hadn't seen any arcades in Mexico. And the cool thing is there's a whole group of people around a game. And I'm like, you know, what game is this? So I walk up there and it's a game where you kick a soccer ball as hard as you can. And it gives you a score to say how hard you kicked it.
0: (laughs) Uh, and that's it. Does that sound similar that to That sounds anything? like that punching ball game that I was talking about last episode.
1: Yeah, and I got a picture of it. I have to put it online. It's totally funny. It's exactly Did what you, you play described. This? No, I didn't. No. There's a whole line of people, and they're, like, just kicking the hell out of this thing. And I'm like, I'm not going to go up there and kick and look like an idiot and get a score. It says, like, two, when they're getting these huge scores. So uh, I, I didn't do it. But uh, I did get pictures, so I'm going to put them on the site. On All side. right. Although I didn't right. see anybody break their foot while I was there, but I'm sure it has happened before.
0: <laughs> I'm sure it happens. Yeah. From time to time. Maybe, maybe on weekends.
1: All right. On to the news. News you can use.
0: Now on to the news. Take it away, Chris. All right. So there's a new uh,
1: video of the new Super Mario Brothers. It's for the Nintendo DS, and the video is pretty cool. It shows uh, competition between two different players, and they're kind of playing the typical Mario level, and they're like trying to clear it. and in. in the bottom screen, it's actually showing the status of how far they've gone. Is that kind of yeah? What it's cool. Out? Like
0: the bottom screen is a map showing where each player is, and the top screen is the normal view of Mario Brothers. And I watched this video, and it just made me want to run out and buy a DS. It just looked
1: really cool. But did you notice it was one of the new DS lights?
0: I didn't, actually. Is that what it was? Yeah, it was.
1: So that's why it looked so cool. It wasn't one of the old DSs, the uncool ones.
0: So it's like this multiplayer wireless Mario Brothers. It just... Cool
1: idea. Yeah, and they say that uh, a, a large collection of Mario party S games are going to be included, like poker and reflex-based games like Whack-A-Mole and Snowball Fights or something like that. And there's going to be quirky ones like you have to blow into the microphone to race balloon suspended Yoshis, which I, Did I you... Did know you just say
0: blow into the microphone?
2: Yeah,
1: so I think Woody would probably be good at that game, I'm
2: thinking. <laughs> I'd rock. I dominate. I dominate the field.
1: So the video looks pretty cool, uh, makes me want to go out and get the, get the new DS Lite so I can actually play a DS. Game. Yeah,
0: there will be a link to this video on our, uh, on our website, so you can check it out.
1: What else is going on, Tom?
0: Well, you alerted us to the fact that there is someone on the Metroid Prime leaderboards who has a bunch of cool accomplishments, and uh, what's his breaking handle? Breaking news, breaking news. <laughs> what was his handle, Chris?
1: Yeah, uh, apparently the, uh, the guy who's topping the Metroid Prime Online leaderboard, his name is uh, I Eat Pooh. Uh, Is that I eat poo? Is that is that what it is? Is you think he's talking about Winnie the Pooh or what? I'm thinking probably. And he he holds uh, the top (laughs) five out of the uh, eight leaderboards in in Metro Prime Hunters for the DS. So it it does prove that a lot of people you know whack on Xbox Live and there's all these kids and teenagers on there. But I would just like to state. Right here, right now, that I Eat Poo is playing on Nintendo DS, <laughs> and he's ruling the scene. You know, he, one of his I've,
0: accomplishments I've... is some like 320 consecutive wins. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, it just doesn't amazing sound like stuff. he eats
1: poo. I, I think it's a misnomer.
0: I bet he's a 35-year-old guy <laughs> who works on
2: Wall Street. They're all ass. Maybe. Sorry.
0: <laughs> okay, so the next story is uh, BBC News reports about a game called RuneScape, uh, which is a multiplayer online game. And the article's about how young people use multiplayer online games not so much to play the game, as just a place to kind of hang out. And they talked to a young player whose handle is Axe Girl, and she says that she goes to this place in the game that's like a waterfall, and she likes to just sit by the river and relax and watch the the water flow by, and it's just a place to hang out. And the part of the story, though, that I thought was sort of disturbing is it says... uh, X-Girl admits she has never seen a real waterfall or sat by a real river, but she uses the virtual experience to imagine how an event in real life might actually feel. Now, that sort of scares me. Like, this girl's never sat by the side of a real river, and so she has to do it in a game? I mean, um, please, get out of the house sometimes and go sit by a real river. It's worth it. Don't you think, guys? that,
1: That story just scares me a bit.
2: Well, yeah, but you just wonder if, you know, some people might not have the opportunity to have a river. I know there's people who come over to Oregon and have never seen mountains before. They, like, look at the foothills, neck, you know, uh, 10 minutes away and are, like, are the is that the mountains? They
0: well, that's true. I mean, and there's other factors, like, you know, there are people who are you know, due to some disability, can't get out of the house. And, and it, I understand that, but if somebody, you know, if you if you have the opportunity to get out to the real world now and then, <laughs> it's probably a good sure. thing to do. It's, it's,
2: it is tragic if that's the only opportunity she ever gets to sit by a river, see a waterfall.
0: Yeah. So my trip to Seattle today reminded me that I'm sort of the other way around. Events in real life remind me of video games because when I got to the Seattle airport and I was on the little automated train that takes you from the gate to the terminal. Being on that train, it, it almost made me think that the announcement was going to say, you know, welcome to Black Rock Mesa. <laughs> so, uh, and I also looked at the walls inside the train station, and it reminded me of that Mark Echo's getting it up graffiti game where you spray graffiti on the walls. So it's just, uh, you know, more and more real life reminds me of games. That's great,
1: Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so what else is going on?
0: Now our next story is something that I think is really funny because it's a local story about Oregon, which is where we live. And Oregon inmates in Oregon prisons are going to be offered the chance to get video games that they can play in <laughs> while they're in prison in exchange for uh, good behavior. And it says in this article, which is from it's USA just like Today, me at home, I, I'm kind of the same way. Like <laughs> <my wife. laughs> That's right. USA Today says it's a hot item said Randy Gere, administrator of the Department of Corrections Incentives Program. Inmates want one and it appears to be motivating them. Now the interesting thing here is in Oregon, some years ago we passed something called Measure 11 which set mandatory sentences for a lot of crimes which means that the way prison used to work is people who had good behavior had a chance of getting paroled sooner. and So there's a reason for them to be good. Well with Measure 11, these people are in there for a certain amount of time, no matter what. So they have to give them some kind of incentive to, to do the right thing and not cause trouble. And the incentive that they're using is video games. And uh, actually, I think this is great. You know, if this helps keep the peace, if this helps keep people from uh, violence and, and causing trouble, then that's great. And it's funny because... What we hear in the news right now is video games cause violence, and here the prisons are using video games to keep prisoners from being violent. Then the article concludes, it says, uh, in the past three years, misconduct, assaults on staff, and fights have declined even as the state's prison population has increased. So there you have it, folks. Video games reduce violence. Nice.
2: See, I'm wondering if we're going to have more crime now because those criminals want to get into prison and play the games. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Britain will witness its first crucifixion for almost two millennia later this week when Cinewolf, a player in the massively multiplayer online role-playing game Ancient Rome, is nailed to a cross as punishment for ganking other players as they first (laughs) appear.
0: What what is ganking? i got to know. Ganking is when you go and kill lower-level characters who have no chance against you.
1: What's the problem with that? Seems totally legit to me.
0: The game is called Roma Victor, and it's set in ancient Rome. And so, I think this is really funny because they sort of ma- they made the in-game punishment be within you know that sort of setting that the game is in. So this right. is a player, Does guy his character online when he's character, is going to be crucified, and and other players will get to like watch him up on the cross and throw stuff at him or something. Right.
2: No, but that's the thing. I think if he logs in, he only get, he he's just sitting up there on the cross the whole time. He can't move. So whatsoever. he doesn't get to do anything? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's pretty funny. I think that's awesome. So this guy's going to get how long? Seven days, one week. On first, the cross. And that's that's like a standard initial punishment now. Wow. Yeah.
0: So that, in effect, that means for seven days he can't really do anything in the game. He's sort of locked out, except all he can do is log in and be on the cross.
2: And watch people throw food at him. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I think this is
0: so funny, but it's just—it's just funny. Be great, I'd go
2: up there and throw food at people. I think that'd be hilarious.
0: If you—if you had an account on this game, would you log in just to go and watch that? Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, I was just reading a blog called the Deviant Synapse blog, and he had this post called "Gaming Dorks Are Ruining Games." And what he says Did he is you that. By
1: name, Tom. Or?
0: No, I I wondered if he was talking about us though. He said that people who are hardcore gamers are killing video games because now the game designers design for them, which means that they design things to be really, really hard that only the hardcore gamers can complete. And you know, this makes games no fun for the average person. Do you guys think this is this is true? Sounds I, like the one of a loser. True. No, I think it's true because <laughs> if you look at. <laughs> thanks
1: uh i think it's true because if you look at a lot of the games today they they definitely are more complex and i think a lot of that has to do with people saying you need to put this in you need to put this in i need this i need that need this and it just makes games unapproachable by new people which is fine you know there are certain games that i think you know they're made for that type of player but overall you're really excluding a lot of people from playing your game if you keep adding that complexity into it it needs to be simple and But if those
2: are the games that sell, I mean, maybe those are the only people buying the games these days. That's what keeps these people in business.
1: Right. But, see, the thing is, I think that's kind of a a pretty narrow-minded approach, if those are the only things that sell. Because we've seen in the past that games that kind of transcend different types of people, like Tetris... And those types of games, you're gonna get a much larger audience if you, if you don't add the complexity. Now.
2: But things like that require a breakthrough of genius. I mean, it's, you can't. Does it?
1: I mean, I'm not sure about that because I've been playing the 2600 Flashback too and a lot of those games, I remember everybody playing them, my parents playing them, other people playing them, neighbors playing them, and the reason they played them is they could pick them up and play them really quickly. I'm not saying all games have to be that basic, but adding a lot of these features, I just think you're excluding more and more of the, of the, of the gameplay audience.
0: Well, on the plane ride up to Seattle today, I was reading the latest issue of Wired, and they have a little poll where they they polled readers on what they thought was the best video game of all time, and none of the top games that people said were the best of all time were made in the last ten years. The top ones I think were like Tetris, Pac Man. They're all classic games. I think the most recent game in that list was Doom.
1: Yeah, and, and Doom, so I think Doom wasn't a real complex game.
0: It was run and shoot. Yeah. And I think there is something to that. I think there's there's a reason why people still play the classic games because those games are something you can just pick up and play. And you know, on the one hand, it might take a a lot of effort to become a real master of a game like Pac-Man and and get a super high score. But you can also just enjoy it and play for a few minutes without being great and not feel like you're a loser. And and some of these games now. You know, unless you're gonna devote a lot of time, you are gonna feel disappointed. You're gonna feel like you're a loser because you're gonna go up and not be able to do anything.
1: Right. I I think that kind of started, too, a lot of that with the fighting games in the arcades, you know, started going that direction. It just kind of has never really turned back. It keeps progressing, getting more and more complex.
2: Definitely, unless you knew the special combos and stuff. Yeah. I mean, you how many times time. did you
1: walk up, like, to a Street Fighter machine when it first came out, Street Fighter 2? You, like, you get on it, and the guy just, like, takes you out with special moves. You're like, oh, yeah, oh, that was great. That was oh, fun. Yeah. I liked that. that <laughs> you got to add more yeah. special moves. you got to have the kung fu this, kung fu that, the special move
0: this, special move that. And I'm like, Dude, I
1: can't keep all this in my mind. And just well, some of it,
0: you know, that's when games started to become about memorizing every combination of different button presses.
2: Welcome to the Retro Respect section. Chris, what are we talking about today?
1: Uh, this time we're talking about the Atari Flashback 2 video game console, which plays Atari 2600 games, or a selected set of Atari 2600 games, I should say.
0: Does I'm going to come... have to pick one of these up. I just saw it at Target. It looks great. It actually looks kind of like the original Atari 2600.
1: Yeah, it's two-thirds the size of the original Atari 2600 console, and it comes with 40-plus old 2600 games. Now, and...
2: in cartridges?
1: No, it's uh, it's on board. It's ah. it's built in, and I think the reason they did that is they said that if they had a cartridge port. That it would cause, you know, problems with calling support, and the people that are Atari now isn't the old Atari, so they don't want to have to, main you know, do support for the games that they didn't actually produce.
2: Well, I'm sure it's much cheaper to just build those in than actually ship it with 40 extra cartridges. But yeah, exactly.
1: And there is actually a way to put a cartridge port on it, and we're going to discuss that later. But probably the coolest part about this system is that it's $29.99, and I've seen yeah, that's a great price. That's like
0: less than one Game Boy Advance game.
1: It's Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or if you think about it, you could buy two of them for the price of an Xbox 360 game. Sure. So uh, what's interesting about it is that um, it's a real console. Unlike a lot of the systems out there that you see, these handheld systems or these single joysticks by Jack Specific that are somewhat emulated and they don't match the original exactly, So unlike a lot of those systems out there, this is, this is a real console. What I mean by that. It's not running
0: an emulator, right?
1: It's not running an emulator. It's got a scaled down version of the, the hardware that was actually part of the 2600. So what's kind of also interesting is that you can use the original 2600 controllers, paddles, all those kind of things with this because it, it has a spot to, to put in those particular controllers in the back of, of the system. So it is a real console.
2: Now does it come with some controllers then? Or? Do you buy those separately?
1: Yeah, it comes with a, a set of controllers that are 2600 like, but they're much improved. The 2600 controllers had issues. Like, I remember the little rubber boot would come loose. Oh yeah. And uh, my friends and I would like suction them to our heads. Well, We were just kids, of course, but uh, <laughs> but that was a problem with them. And they were also hollow in the middle. So the the 2600 controllers that come with this are kind of an improvement on those old controllers, and they're much more stable. But they, they will even work with an old system, so they're, they're really an improvement on the original 2600 controllers.
2: Nice. And they feel like the old ones. Now. They
1: feel a lot like the old ones, yeah. So there was uh, this is the Flashback 2, but there was a Flashback 1. So, what's the know, difference? What's the difference? Yeah, exactly. The Flashback 1 was emulated, so a lot of the games had to be changed or ported, similar to, again, like the Jack Pacific. But with the Flashback 2, as we said, it's based on the original schematics, and it's a single chip of circuitry circuitry that was done by uh, Kurt Vendel, who we're going to be talking to later, hopefully. And another big improvement on the Flashback 2 versus, not the Flashback 1, but the original console, is they eliminated all the RF circuitry altogether and you get a pure composite output, which is, is key. So if you've ever messed with those stupid RF switches and tried to get those to work with a modern-day television, it's kind of a pain you have to do Yeah, go, I
2: can't even imagine how you'd hook that yeah, up these days.
1: there's adapters, too. But the signal that you get isn't that clear. Well, what's really nice about this particular device is because it's pure composite, uh, you get a really nice picture. So what do you want to know about it? You probably want to know about the games, right? I yeah, what saying. kind of yes.
0: games are loaded onto this?
1: So it comes with 40-plus games, and it consists of popular games for the 2600 homebrew games and unreleased prototypes. And they split. It has a menu system that comes up, and you can pick the game that you want to play, and they split it into different categories. They have arcade, space, adventure, skill and action. So I I listed some of my favorite games that I played on it. And what's kind of cool is every time I do turn on the system and play it, and I do turn it on and play it every day since I got it, is I find a different game that I forgot about or or a prototype that I didn't know existed and it's just it's very cool, but some of my favorite games on it are they got rights from Activision to put some of their games on here, and they have Pitfall and River Raid, which oh, are two nice. of my favorite games for the twenty six hundreds yes. Pitfall is kind of the first kind of side-scrolling adventure. I know there were others, but it's kind of the one that people refer to as one of the really groundbreaking titles in that particular genre. And I love River Raid. I think that's a good Yeah, game. River Raid is good. They also reworked some of the original games. Like, you guys remember Asteroids on the 2600?
0: Oh, oh, sure, yeah. yeah. The
1: thing I didn't like about Asteroids on the 2600 is I bought the cartridge, brought it home, and the Asteroids were these full, like, colored things. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, they're sort of like, blocky. Where the arcade game had vector graphics, and I love vector graphics. It just right. looks so crisp out- and clear. The Asteroids
2: were outlines. Outlines, right. Yeah.
1: So what they've done with this is, they, you know, they, it's not a vector television, so you can't get pure vector. But what they've done is they've hollowed out the asteroids so it looks a lot more vector-like. And even the spaceship that comes oh. after you.
2: So some of the games they have actually altered the code.
1: Yeah, some of them they have. Uh, but for the better. But Yeah, for the better. Uh, I was playing Asteroids today, and I have the cartridge as well, and I was playing that. And it's side-by-side. I know it's like there's the gameplay is the same, but for some reason just having those hollowed-out asteroids makes me feel better. I don't know why. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. A couple. Now, of-
2: and you, now, we may be getting to it later, but you just mentioned that you actually used a cartridge to compare it?
1: Yeah, and I'll get to that later, Woody. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we'll be talking about that. I was trying to provide the lead in. Yeah, that, that, that's good, that was good. That was good. That right. was good. I like that. So some of the other games that come on it are Missile Command, which to me is really like one of the ultimate games for the 2600. Because when I had a 2600, I was all about getting the arcade conversions for home. And to me, Missile Command is one of the games that really stood up to, uh, Simulating the arcade experience at home, you know, minus the trackball, and I, and there are actually right. trackballs that you can purchase from Missile Command and add, and they will work with this really? with, with uh, the flashback too. That
0: yeah. would be great because I think that game really does benefit from having the trackball. Yeah, but
1: it's a great game, even with the joystick. I love it on the twenty six hundred. Of course, Yars' Revenge is included. Our our friend who we uh, we uh, interviewed, interviewed in episode two, episode two, Howard Scott Warshaw's great game is on there. And today I was messing around and I discovered uh, Dodge 'em. I don't know if you guys remember. Oh, yeah. Do you remember Dodge oh, 'em? Oh,
2: yeah.
0: Great game. It's <laughs> a great game.
1: And I totally forgot about it and I went online and I you know, went to the. Uh, that's the trip. game that's
0: like Dodgeball, right?
1: No, not Dodgeball. You have cars going around a track.
0: Oh, that's right. And you're going in opposite directions. you go going the opposite yeah. direction. Yeah. It's kind of yeah, like yeah. Pac
1: Man in a way. you got to yes, pick up right. all the dots and avoid but, the other cars, and, and, and avoid and, a head
0: on collision. Yeah, yeah. I remember this.
1: Yeah, so that's a really cool game, awesome. and I've been playing that, and, uh, I totally forgot about it. Went on the web and looked it up and got the cartridge scan, and I was like, wow, I totally remember having that, that cartridge in that box, and it was pretty cool. And the game is just as good today, you know, as it was back then. It's just as addictive. So some of the other things that you get on this, um some things you couldn't have got if you just had a 2600 are these rare prototypes that never were released. I mean, ultimately they were, so you can't get them in cartridge form, but they come right on this, so it's it's really convenient. And one of the games is Save Mary, which was done by Todd Fry. You guys remember Todd Fry? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. From Once Upon Atari. And it's a really cool game where you, you basically have to save Mary, and you build like kind of these Tetris-type patterns of, of structures to get her to a level where you can yank her off with a crane. It's <laughs> kind of cool. It, it, it's definitely a fun game and something I hadn't played, so I've been having fun with that. And Saboteur, another Howard Scott Warshaw game, is on there, uh, unreleased prototype, so you get to play that as well.
0: Speaking of Yars Revenge, I was playing this on Game Boy Advance, and it just cracks me up. It's it, First of all, it's still a fun game today, but it cracks me up that it's one of the few games where you can accidentally shoot yourself. <laughs> and so... Right. You, you just feel like such a dork when you shoot yourself. You'd be surprised
1: how many games on the twenty six hundred you can shoot yourself. <laughs> no, there's a lot. Like I was playing the Disaptron, I kept hitting myself. I was playing. Uh, there's a space shooter game. I can't remember the name of this. Twenty six hundred. But you always always shoot myself. So yeah. So what you're saying
0: is that uh, shooting yourself is a kind of lost feature that modern believe, games have I not adopted. It, it is yes. <laughs> Anyway, it's great, though. Every time that happens, I think, oh, you know, it's just this funny moment. It's really funny.
1: And there's some homebrew games like Caverns of Mars that I've been playing, which is a lot of fun as well. So there's, there's a lot of the original games and really kind of the, the elite of the original games, I would say. There's some homebrew, and <clears throat> there's the prototypes that were never released. There's also an Easter egg uh, in the flashback, too, which is really cool. If when you turn it on, you do a combination of joystick movements that form the uh, the year 1972, which is the year Pong was released, it <laughs> exposes a hidden menu that has paddle games. Wow. And you know this, Woody. We played Warlords the yeah. other day. So yeah. t- two of the games. <laughs> but it was great that you simulated uh, not knowing that. The uh, <laughs> So the two games are Warlords and Super Breakout. And the reason that they're not part of the main menu, I'm, I'm assuming, is because it doesn't come with paddles, and they're only compatible with paddles. So two really cool paddle games, and, and if you get a set of paddles, they're a blast. I know Woody and I played Warlords for quite a bit the other day and had a blast on it. So. Yeah. So the system itself, you know, for $29.99, it's a great deal. There are some issues with it. Such as? Some of the games, especially the prototypes and some of the homebrew, are flashy. They kind of flash a bit, and there's, they're a little bit buggy. So you know none of the originals are going to be that way, but that some of these prototypes and and the uh, and the homebrew games are not going to be hundred percent perfect um some will be some won 't be right. so the beyond the hidden feature with the nineteen seventy two there's there 's another big hidden feature that i 'm really into. Do you guys know what that is uh something about modifying the system I bet good Tom. Uh, again, like what do you pretend like you didn 't know and that that worked real well for us yeah it it 's hackable. And and what that means is, as Woody alluded to earlier, you can add a cartridge board to it, so you, so you, you can know, run
0: the original
1: cartridges. You can run the original cartridges, and it is a it's a fun project. And here's why I think it's a fun project. First of all, if you guys have never done soldering before, messed around with electronics, and you're interested in it, this is a good project to start on because it costs twenty nine ninety nine. It's not like you're messing with your Xbox, which is you know was. Two, three hundred bucks back in the day, or your PS2. This is a thirty-dollar device, and I've seen it even on sale for twenty-some dollars. Uh, that you can uh, you can mess around with and try to add this cartridge port to, and it's a lot of fun. For me, the reason I did it is a, I thought it was fun, and b, there was a couple games that I wanted that weren't included in that list of 40 and one of my favorite games on the 2600 is is space invaders right so by adding this cartridge port i I would be able to play space invaders which was totally cool so i i went out and i i looked at the there's a couple tutorials online and we'll have references to those on our website as well but uh, you have to get some parts to do the conversion for the cartridge to add the cartridge port
2: so what parts would someone need for this mod chris
1: well you're going to need a soldering iron and i used a 15 watt soldering iron obviously you're going to need solder you're going to need a cartridge connector, a 24-pin, uh, one that's compatible with Atari 2600 cartridges. And I got mine from Best Electronics of San Jose. And when I talked to the guy, it was a bit odd. He said that they had very few cartridge ports and he could only sell one to me. So if you want to do this mod, I'd recommend you get a hold of Best Electronics immediately and get your cartridge port because apparently they're in a very limited quantity because there's other people out there doing, doing this particular modification. You need a double-pull, double-throw switch. And essentially what that does is allows you to turn on and off the 40 uh, games that are, are part of the Flashback 2 or turn on the uh, cartridge port. So by flipping that switch, you're turning on the, the 40 games that are on board and at the same time turning off the, uh, the cartridge port and vice versa when you flip the switch the other way. And I'll have all the details on on that online. And there are other tutorials that we're going to point to as well. But that was probably the trickiest part, getting that switch uh, figured out. And and it actually isn't that hard. Uh, I'd also recommend that you have solder braid. And essentially what that would be used for is if you make a mistake, it allows you to easily get rid of the solder. You're going to need wire. And a lot of people, what they're using is like a hard drive uh, cable, just using the wires from the hard drive cable. A wire stripper, uh, obviously, to strip the wire. And a multimeter, and the only thing you're really going to use on that is a continuity test to make sure that you've soldered the things correctly. Right. So it's a cool project. It's not hard, but it does take patience. And again, if you screw up, it's only 29 twenty nine ninety nine. And as I said, we're going to have uh, my notes online as well as pictures of, of people for the, uh, of my particular hack for people that, that want to do it.
0: So that'll be at twitchasylum.com. Yeah. Um, how long did this project take you to do? It um, wasn't too bad.
1: It uh, probably took me. I don't know, maybe three hours total. And that's not bad at all. A summary of what I did is basically just took it apart. Uh, probably the thing that took me longer than the soldering was cutting a spot in the top of the plastic to put the cartridge board in. And you know, you can. Some people don't even do that; they just have the thing hanging on the outside and allow you to put a cartridge in. But I just wanted to make it look aesthetically pleasing, so yeah, I cut look it. Ugly. I cut it into the plastic to make it look, and that took a bit of time. Then I wired up the uh, double pole, double-throw switch, which, again, I'll, I'll, I'll have online how you do that. The nice thing is the pinouts for the actual cartridge port are on the silk screen of the board itself. So it tells you that, that what pin is uh, should go to what location on the cartridge connector, and, and they're numbered. So it's it's really easy to look on the number on the motherboard. Since there's 24 pins on the cartridge, you look at pin 1, obviously goes pin 1. Pin 2, and they're marked right on the motherboard, so it's 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 really easy to uh, to figure out what's going on there. So you have to solder around 58 points, so you have to kind of be patient. There's a lot of points to solder, but nothing's too difficult. And I would recommend that you check and double-check the points for correct, correct continuity, because if you do get off and you ac- accidentally put too much solder, you might bridge a couple points together, so you want to make sure that that's not happening. And if you need help with that, again, come to the forums and ask, and I can, I can help you with that. And the biggest hint I can give you guys when doing this is to make sure you don't leave too much wire exposed. Because what can happen is when you go to cram all this stuff back in, is the wires will bend and be close to each other. So if there's just too much uh, raw wire exposed at the ends, when they bend over, they may touch each other. And that actually happened to me. So when I put it back together, it didn't work. When I took it out, it worked. And I had to figure out where it was shorting and kind of put a smaller uh, wire exposure there. So... That's right. it, and you test it, and it works on most cartridges. It doesn't work on all cartridges. I found a couple cartridges it wouldn't work on, uh, ones that have expanded RAM it has issues with. But if a cartridge, if you put it in and just get like a black screen, that doesn't necessarily mean the cartridge isn't compatible. These these cartridges are old, so you're going to want to clean like the edge of the cartridge and make sure that uh, that it's getting good contact because well, a lot of times that's the issue.
2: And I remember even back in the day, you used to have to fiddle with those cartridges just to get them to work Yeah, often. So, so for
0: people who are coming new to this, where can they get the old original cartridges?
1: Well, I found uh, on Craigslist, I picked up like a box of 50 for like $12. And, and of course, pound? there's always eBay. Yeah, eBay is great. You know, they're, they're really cheap. Uh, the games are, are really cheap, so you can just go on eBay and find them. I've been playing a ton of games on it though, like Space Invaders, like nonstop. So yeah, it, it's it's a lot of fun, and uh, and it's just you know it's just fun to hack stuff and see it work. At the end of the day, feel like you accomplished something. And for those of you who haven't done a lot of hacking with solder and and soldering irons, it's just a good project to learn on.
2: Yeah, that's cool. Yes.
1: All right, recently I was able to interview Kurt Vendell. For those of you who don't know, uh, Kurt wears quite a few hats. I'm not sure how the guy ever sleeps. He's probably one of the most famous Atari historians or collectors in the world. He runs the website atarimuseum.com, as well as being founder of the Atari Historical Society. And he has one of the largest collections of Atari memorabilia in the world. And probably most relevant to this particular podcast, Kurt is the project and hardware lead for the Flashback 2 game console. So, due to the length of this particular podcast and the interview with Kurt, we decided to split the interview into two sections. So, you'll be able to listen to the second portion of this interview on our next podcast. On to the interview. Today, we're being joined by Kurt Mendel, who's a project and hardware lead for the Flashback 2 game console. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Real good. In the previous segment of the podcast, we talked about the Flashback 2, and it's an absolutely cool game console. and really takes me back to the days when I used to play the Atari 2600 as a young kid. But one of the things that I've kind of noticed is that the Flashback 2 console, while it's popular with uh, with gamers like me that were, were around way back in the day, it seems to be popular even with kids today. Because I know a lot of uh, my friends, they've actually purchased the Flashback console for their kids, and the kids just like it. So what do you attribute that success to being uh, popular with, uh, with, with kids even today?
3: Uh, the popularity among a lot of the younger kids is the fact that the games are easy, they're simple, um, which is what they were always meant to be. A lot of today's games are just too complicated. Uh, takes too long on the learning curve, and uh, you know kids have the attention span of uh, golden retrievers. So um, <laughs> if you if you can't give them something that they can just immediately pick up, play, and, and then throw down and go off and do something else, it's it's not going to appeal to them. And I think that's uh, a, a huge part of uh, retro gaming and, and classic gaming is that uh, the games are simple and you know easy to learn, hard hard to master.
1: So, how did you get involved with the development of the Flashback Two and even the Flashback One game consoles?
3: Well, it, it's um, it kind of goes back to uh, getting involved with uh, with collecting back in the uh, the early to mid '80s and seeing down the engineers that were involved with certain products, getting names, dates, products. Quantities, uh, flying out to, to California constantly, rummaging through, uh, the trash, going to liquidation companies and sellouts and stuff, and, and just amassing this, this monstrous collection of, of not just the hardware, which is kind of the, you know, the thing that everybody sort of gravitates to. It's like, ooh, wow, you know, there, there's a prototype Atari computer, or prototype video game. Um, the thing that I did sort of, what no one else was really doing was I was focusing more on not just the hardware or the software or the, the prototype ROMs. There used to be a big uh, to-do about, you know, oh, yeah, I own a prototype and you don't. Uh, more to, more than that was, was the was paperwork, uh, documents, uh, schematics, mechanical drawings, artwork. That was the stuff that I was really, really going for, and I felt that that was far more important than just a hunk of plastic and metal on, on a a on a table to show up. It's great to own something physical, it's great to say, hey, I own one of one or one of five or or whatever it is, but to be able to go and pull out two feet high thick engineering manuals and notebooks and stuff and say, here's everything that went into this product, you know, this was was the time, the effort. You've got, you know, it's incredible to sit there and read in someone's own handwriting back in 80 or or 83 or 78 or whatever it is, uh, to read the engineer's notes to say, you know, ran into this problem, found a fix, this is not going right, having problems with the tooling, the dye, the plastic, the artwork's not coming through, management's cutting budgets, to to sit there and to be able to read through line by line and understand the true history behind the 2600 or behind uh, the graduate computer or, or the 1450XLD. Uh, you know, computer or or the 7800, any any of the products that were made or or were only made in prototype, to be able to sit there and to be able to understand fully and in depth what went on behind the product, that's what really counted. So as the years went by, I'm amassing more and more of, of documents, products, software, manuals, whatever whatever I could, you know, hunt down and find. And I'm, I'm, I'm calling people blindly in the middle of the night saying, you know, hi, I, I, you know, I hope I have, you know, the right person. Uh, did you work in, you know, this division or that division? You know, it was always, you know, sort of, uh, you know, potluck. You know, one day you'd find somebody, next day you wouldn't find anyone. But uh, making a lot of calls, making a lot of rounds, doing a lot of research um, getting their side of the story and, and noting it, making notes on the website, you know, putting the contributions of the little guys, the guys that are in the trenches, not not the Nolan Bushnell or the Al Alcorn or the Dave Thore or or you know uh, Larry Kaplan or, or you know all, all, all the names that sort of go around the, the more famous names. Well, you know, now I'm going down to the little guys and I'm making them known uh, and 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 letting people know that, that products weren't all just about. Uh, Nolan or, or Al Alcorn or anybody. There were a lot of other people that were involved in a lot of things within Atari. And, and going on my website, you, you can see that I, I try to mention as many names as possible. I, I formed this network of, of people by, by calling everyone, finding out this information, and in turn they networked me with more people. And I, I you know, just continue to amass more and more data and materials and information to, you know, the point where I'm, I'm at right now. I'm actually going through my third office now. I'm, I'm expanding again. Uh, you know, I started off with a small, you know, 100 square foot office, then moved up to a 300 square foot. Now I'm moving up to a 600 square foot. But in the meantime, I've got three. 20 by 20 storage containers because I just don't have physically enough room for all the paperwork and documents and and, and materials and stuff. Plus I've got a lot of big ticket items. I've got arcade machines. Um, I I started over a couple of years ago. I started hunting down uh, Atari's original mainframe computers. Their their Vaxes and and their their minis. So, you know, I've actually now found three of their mainframe computers, um, which have been essential for me. Um I started to started to get contacted by my Atari around maybe two thousand one, two thousand two, um, on and off, asking for uh, information. Do you know about this? Uh, we have a patent case. You wouldn't have to have any patent paperwork. Uh, you know, we, we need some video. We need some this. Can you, can you look over a product that we're working on? And the relationship kept building and building and building between myself and, and Atari. Uh, and I kept offering more and more. And, and literally what was happening was I was sort of becoming the source for their their creative department, their legal department, um, their marketing department, you know, for for any kind of materials and such. And I started to be invited into uh, various uh, marketing and sales meetings and, um, you know, listening to what's going on, giving the input that was needed. And then there was always an opportunity uh, to kind of uh, have an open forum. And I was constantly pushing, you guys need to get back into hardware. You need to get back into hardware. Do small things. How about joysticks? Uh, you know, how, how about, you know, uh, you know, inter- different types of arcade controllers for PC lines and, you know, Dreamcast and, and GameCube and N64 and, 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 you know, whatever the current uh, hot ticket console at the time was. And when I was asked to consult about the Jack specific line of uh, controllers, uh, that Atari was licensing to, to them, uh, we started to get some more serious talks because the sales figures are coming in just on the joysticks. I said, you guys got to start doing your own stuff. And for about a year and a half, I'm pitching this. I'm pitching, you know, you guys need to do your own stuff. You need to do a console. You need to do a console. And then finally, May, end of May 2004, I get a phone call. And uh, they say, you know, Kurt, come on in. We're going to do a console. Come on in. So I come up for a meeting and basically uh Not being prepared, they just kind of said, okay, well, you know, give us the pitch. And I'm like, okay. And I've got, you know, like basically 20 people, all the heads of all the different divisions of at Atari all sitting there. And I kind of just gave an impromptu, you know, uh, sort of speech on why they should be doing this, what they should be doing. And I was asked to step out of the, the, the meeting for a minute or two and then step back in. Okay, Kurt, you got the green line, uh, green light. Go, go, go do this for us. You know, I said, well, I need two weeks to research it all out and I'll come back with the timetables and the costs and everything. And, you know, I come back two weeks later after speaking with my production partners and we're like, okay, well, we can, you know, we can replicate the 2600 chip and then do this and do that and the 700 chip. Okay, we can have it all, we can have it all ready in four months and ready to market in six. Now, mind you, this is like the first week of June or so, and I come back to them, and they like, they're, they're like, well, no, we actually, we needed to ship in September to be in the retailers by October, and I'm like, okay, this can't be done. <laughs> and they're like, well, this is your one shot. Do it, or you, you, you're not going to be able to, we're, we're not going to do anything after this. So I went back, we went back and looked, and we said, okay, the only thing we're really going to be able to do is, you know, we can we use an off-the-shelf clone chip. We, we chose the the, the the Nintendo chip, and then the decision came back, 25, maybe 30 games, and it just it wasn't going to happen. There was just not enough time to develop that many games. We did 20 we did five 7800 games. We did 15 2600 games and put them together. We did a, we did a mini 7800 console, and the reason why that was chosen was it was the 20th anniversary of the 7800. Um, also, it was that this was this was not going to be the product. Uh, it wasn't going to be powered by a real chip. It wasn't a real Atari chip. It wasn't going to be, you know, this wasn't going to be the killer product. This was sort of dipping the toes in the water kind of product. So I wanted to save the 2600 design for later on, so we right. decided, okay, we're going to go with the 700. We we did mini, we did we did a tiny little console. We did uh, smaller joysticks for for costing, and also the, the original 700 joysticks were a little too big and unwielding. And, and we did a couple of innovations to the controllers. Uh, added a couple functions onto them that weren't originally there, um, and we, we put some nice history into the console, a little history screen, and uh, some nice things. But it was it was a rushed product, admittedly. I mean, we had 10 we had ten whole astounding weeks by the time the sign-off came and the green light, I think it was July 7th or so, uh, to officially get started once all the paperwork was done. And we had 10 whole weeks to get this product out the door. And I mean, we're talking re- rewriting 20 games, plastics, electronics, controllers, mechanical, packaging, manual, the whole deal. I mean, it was, it was absolutely insane. I mean, none of us slept... for for the the entire summer, so we were just working non-stop. Um, But we got it done, and yeah, the games were not not the way they should have been. They were good games. They they play well. It's just people expected more, because it was a product being done by Atari. It wasn't a third-party company. It was Atari themselves, so people expected more. They expected the bar to be higher, and um, sales were, 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 were actually astounding. I mean, they were far better than we had expected, and Got the phone call in December after sales figures came back in uh to have a meeting, and the meeting was, you know, what can we do next? And that was when, you know, we said, okay, well, we'll move on to to the next product, and you know, we it, it hadn't been dubbed anything yet, so we were all just kind of kidding around, you know, Tron 2.0 was, you know, kind of floating around in the in the airwaves at the time, so we said, okay, flashback 2.0, and you know, that kind of went with that for a little while. It was a, it was a fun sort of uh working title, but you know, uh eventually uh when we when it was publicly shown in E three in May, it was then officially dubbed the the, the flashback two. But in September um, you know we sat down, had a discussion and this time, you know, I laid out what we wanted to do, what my firm wanted to do for Atari and one of the stipulations was that You know, we had to have the time this time. We we needed a six-month window from start to finish, get this done. And I said, uh, you know, there's a couple of things I I would really like to do here, uh, you know, specifically um, with the Easter eggs. I said, I want to put a couple of features in here uh, specifically for uh, the hardware hackers, and I want to get the homebrew community involved because there there were some some issues. Uh, Atari Legal kind of got a little aggressive with... uh, with some of the homebrew community. They they went after a bunch of people. They went after one of the major Atari community sites uh, on on a ROM it had out there. It kind of got ugly. I mean, you had people running around with avatars all over the Internet, you know, saying, you know, down with, you know, infograms, you know, don't buy Atari, don't buy, you know, don't buy infograms. You know, it it got, it got, it was a, really bad, ugly PR thing, so I, I, a couple of things I wanted to do was I wanted to bring the homebrew community, I wanted to get them involved, I, I wanted uh, and behind the scenes I was working with uh, a couple of key homebrewers and a couple of key PR department uh, kind of bringing everybody to the table uh, fixing a, a lot of uh, you know, broken fences and then, and, and mending a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, burnt bridges and such. So a lot of things got fixed and, uh, some, some things, uh, sort of in the background and, uh, were accomplished and were allowed because of, uh, uh, Atari's willingness to, to, to try and, you know, reach out and do the right thing. And, and, in the end, uh, you know, we wound up with a couple of nice homebrews on the unit. Uh, we did a couple of new beams, which had never been done on the 2600. Uh, I was involved. Uh, personally, with the game design of, of of one game, but not the programming of it, but I was involved with the programming and and uh, worked on a port of of one of the other ones. But game design, the game concept was uh, was Yar's Return, which was. Um, it was actually, it was actually a, a bigger game. It was actually supposed to have elements of Vanguard in it. It was supposed to be, uh, you, you would fly through tunnels and make your way to the, the Master, uh, Kotile Hive and then do battle, uh, but due to, uh, due to the size and, uh, you know, uh, also resources in getting, getting everything done, uh, we just cut it down to where it was just going to be the Master coatile Chamber. Uh, I'm hoping maybe sometime in the future to, to, to fully, uh, evolve the, the original Yar's Return and put in all of the, uh, all of the extra gameplay of that. Um, and then I worked on the port of Adventure 2. I, I, actually worked with Ron Lloyd, who was kind enough to actually supply his maps and, uh, gameplay elements to me, uh, for his 5200, uh, game. He's a cafe man on, on AtariH.com and he's been working on Adventure 2 for the 5200 for the last couple of years. Um, so we wanted to do a port on the 2600. So he gave me the elements that I needed, and then um, uh, I rewrote the Adventure Kernel and created Adventure 2, uh, expanding on the original design and using a lot of uh, Ron Lloyd's maps. If, if you really carefully follow a lot of his maps, you'll see that while, while the 2600 version is probably one-fifth or one-quarter the size of, of his, uh, his realm's um, you will notice that there are certain mazes that were retained so that you know you, you'll see you know you 'll see uh a lot of the hedge maze is, is in there, and then some of our our own unique designs most of the water kingdom is very similar uh, about a quarter of his quarter quarter of his water kingdom was in, was involved. invoked um, a lot of the blue maze the ice maze uh there there are pieces of the ice maze carried over and and uh the only place I think we didn't use uh any of his maze was the Fire Kingdom. Uh I was running out of uh I was running out of space and I was running into a lot of I was running into a lot of hiccups. If you notice when you play adventure every once in a while you get a hiccup. And it's it's there's something that the 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 CPU just at one point kind of hiccups. It 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 uh keeping track of the dragons, the bat, the objects, yourself, everything. Across so many screens, every time something moves or changes, uh, I was running into a problem. So, uh, occasionally it gets a little bit of a, a, a hiccup. But, uh, I, I think, I think overall it was, it was a really good, uh, sequel. I think it was a, a justifiable sequel for for adventure. And and I really, I I I really, I think 99% of the people seem to feel that you know I, I did justice by the game, and I'm I'm happy with that. And that that was what it was all about. You know, as far as other aspects of the, the flashback too, I you mean know, obviously you know maintaining the the element of the, of the 2600. It's it's an exact um, two-thirds size console. Uh, we gave it some modern accents because uh, one of the things I was concerned with was costing of the switches was going to be ridiculously high. Second of all, um, if we did it exactly the same, all of the little you know stereo front stereo switches, I was just concerned that someone would walk past a countertop look at and go, oh, someone has one of their old 2600s on the counter, and just keep walking. So the idea was give it sort of a modern facelift and add on some new, you know, color, you know, Atari-centric, uh, uh, centric you know, kid-friendly buttons on there. So, um, you know, we used the, the red from the fire button and then the orange from the, the original orange paint trim, around joysticks, around the original 2600, uh, the, the control panel had a little bit of an orange trim around it, so we, we maintained all of those Atari colors to get, you know, looking the same, you know, we added in a couple of little extra little odds and ends that uh, people, you know, don't really notice that much, but they're there, I mean, the black and white switch is there, uh, which is important because it actually is used as a pause switch in a couple of games like Climber 5. And um, the real key things about Flashback Two, the things that really stood out that we, you know, we made sure were: a, uh, I spent a tremendous amount of time with the mechanical engineers. I wanted the twenty six hundred, uh, the CX forty B joysticks. Right, yeah. I wanted these to be, you know, the absolute, you know, jewel. I wanted this to be the, you know, the diamond in, in, in the pile of coal here. That, you know, no matter what. Everyone was going to really, really be happy with these joysticks uh, we, we took a lot of flack on the seventy hundred joysticks. I really wanted to recoup it and then some on on the uh the, the c x forty bs and and we really i i think I think it has the best feel of any twenty six hundred joystick um the tactile response the, the ball response uh they're, they're made unbelievably tough although someone posted a picture of a joystick stalk snapped off and I, I mean other than i think putting it behind somebody's car wheel and car wheel and backing up over it i just you know i have no idea how someone can can manage to snap off a stalk off off those joysticks because you know I've, I've i've put them on the floor and i've pushed down on my foot and you know you, you're you know you really shouldn't be finding a way to snap it off unless you're completely abusing it. But then I would probably say compare that to an original Atari 2600 joystick. <laughs> Whatever you did to snap the new CX-40Bs, if you did that to an original 2600 joystick, those hollow stalks would snap or, or, or bend and break uh, well before the CX-40Bs. Uh, that, that, was, that was an important aspect. The boot sliding up and down was another issue which was resolved. We did a solid stick uh, joystick. We also were considering some other aspects, which were uh, packaging and and shipping. So one of the neat things we did was we actually made the joystick screw into the base. You can actually take the joystick out um, if you wanted to for storage. You can put put it back, you know, screw it back in. um, Opportunity that if we ever wanted to do some other variations of the joystick, we could always unscrew the stalk and do some other things with it. The... um, the electronics inside, you know, it's, it's all gold-plated with with uh, conductive rubber contacts and such. So, and. It's far superior as far as its longevity and quality over over the original uh, 2600 joysticks, and we got the price down, and then they work perfectly fine on every single 2600, 1700, 800. I mean, literally down in my office, I don't think I have an original 2600 joystick running on any of my equipment anymore. I've got, you know, a 1700 running with with them. I've got my flashback, obviously, my 2600, and my 800 computer all have uh, the new CX40Bs all plugged into them. I don't even think about it. I guess the other thing on the flashback, too, was compatibility. Um, because we're using a real 2600 chip inside, uh, we made sure that the joystick ports were electro- electrically uh, compatible with trackballs, paddles, uh, anybody's third-party controllers, which was I, I felt was an important thing. I-, 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 I can't tell you, I can still remember the day uh, plugging in an Atari 2600 trackball turning on centipede, hitting the the fire button to start it up, and slide my hand across that trackball that first time. And I tell you, I got got like the tingles for a second. And when I saw the controller, I'm like, like, this is how it's supposed to be. And, you know, because of costing, we we couldn't include paddles with the 2600, uh, the the, the flashback 2. But I wanted to include some paddle games. So, so this was kind of fun because this was like the big top secret thing. Uh, only the head of, head of marketing and uh, head of legal and myself and, 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 of course, the engineers internally knew about the Easter egg. Inside of the console, and you know, we had this like big top secret thing. You know, no one could share the menu structure, how how the menu, you know, the whole the whole layout of the menu, and then how to get to the secret uh... hidden Easter eggs. And you know, there was even talk about doing a contest and such. I said, I said, I, I it because you know, I, I give I give the hardware hackers about a week or so, and they'll disassemble the ROM and they'll figure out where the heck everything is. So they 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 scrap that. But there was like this whole big secret thing about the hidden Easter egg menu. But you know the the basic idea was include paddle games, include some of the best ones. Obviously, Warlord, Super Breakout are two of the two of the best in in my opinion uh, games. Obviously, Warlords because you know here's here's a four game, you know here's a four paddle game, and of course Super Breakout. I mean you can play four four players, but of course not simultaneously. So you know we want to include them because it's important to include these great games. But you can't include them if you don't include controllers with them you can't sell a product or sell the games on a product if you're not including the appropriate controllers there so the idea was well we include them but we have to hide them so so they're not we're not selling the games we're not selling them as a product feature they're just hidden in there and if you find them great if you've got a set of paddles to play them great but you know it's up to you so that was that was part of you know keeping the atari heritage of easter eggs alive. But at the same time, making sure that there weren't going to be any legality issues involved. So this was kind of a, a, a multi-tier uh, solution to, to an interesting uh, uh, problem. And then of course the final, you know, the final thing was uh, making sure that the unit could be hardware hackable, that you could put a cartridge port on it. Uh, due to costing, uh, the original boards that were supposed to go into the flashback two were going to be double-sided. Now you see those funky green boards inside of most electronic equipment. Most people are familiar with, with PCBs or motherboards and such. Um, on them are these little these little pieces, these little tiny you know uh, lines that go all over the place, and this this connects all the components together. Well, on a double-sided board, that means you've got twice the real estate and you've got twice the opportunity to run these little lines back and forth on one side and then bring it through onto the front of the yeah. other and go underneath one, one, one to path and over another. Well, on a single-sided board... You are so unbelievably restrained, it, you know, unless you're – you really – you have to be E to really truly appreciate sometimes how restrained you can be. And when you look at that board, there's not that much real estate to, to deal with. The end result was we went from design, which was supposed to be a, a board with an exact footprint of the cartridge connector. All you had to do was go buy a cartridge connector, slide it into the holes, solder the other sides, and um, join one trace, cut another, boom, and you're ready to go. The final result was we just had to have little contact points all over the board where you had a you know you had to solder a wire onto it and then you'd wind up with this sort of you know this ribbon cable that you'd end up going to your cartridge connector and it 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 took a lot more you know it takes a lot more skill and it's a lot more patience so uh, we we tried to accommodate people in that we put a little map on the back of the board we silk screened it and said you know pin one is you know a one pin two is a two and you know you know whatever happened to have been. so, but we tried, to, we tried to give people a lot of instructions, and then I, of course, put up a website myself which more uh, clearly detailed the exact uh, pin tabs that were on, on the board to make sure there wasn't any confusion because there are actually a couple yeah. of contact points on there which are really, really close, and it's very difficult to, to discern, you know, is this really pin 1 or is this pin 18? So I, I wanted to make sure everybody knew clearly um, uh, what the contact point were on there.
1: Aren't those located in different places for the uh, Flashback 2 Revision B? And also, aren't the locations of the Switch a bit different if you want to switch on the onboard uh, games versus uh, running them through the cartridge?
3: That's that's right. There was a there was a second revision of the board itself, and it's actually a slightly smaller board, a little bit of a, a different design, and the contact points actually almost lined up a lot better. Like pins 10 through 15 are like right next to each other. Uh, You know, they're group they're grouped, they're grouped together a little bit better, and they're. A lot easier to find. I think the only one that was kind of that kind of disappeared on people. I think was pin 18 because it was like very far over, and some people didn't notice it. But uh, uh, a couple of people on the on the web pointed it out. So um, the second rev of the board right. was actually a little bit yeah. uh, a little bit better uh, design. I was very happy that that was done without. Uh, you know, the guys realized that uh, it needed improvement, and they just went ahead and did it.
1: All right, we'd like to thank Kurt Vendell once again for taking the time to do the interview and remind you that you can catch the second portion of the interview on the next podcast. Some of the music provided tonight was from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. You can check them out at music.podshow.com. We'll see you in two weeks.